Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. If you've got your Bibles, let's see them, hold them high. I'll tell you, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. Amen? We'll turn in those Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, continuing on in Matthew. And I don't know about you guys, but Elizabeth and I have enjoyed watching. It's a British television show that they're showing on PBS, and it's called All Creatures Great and Small. You might have read at some point the book by the same name. And it's the story of James Harriet, a veterinarian in the Yorkshire part of England in the 1930s and 40s. Well, recently, the story involved the lead character, James Elliot, Harriet, <laughs> going off to fight in World War II and to protect his wife and the lives of England uh, and the world against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. The foe was formidable and he signed up to go and fight the foe. The end of the last episode featured James Harriet reciting a beautiful poem for his wife Helen as it showed her reading it. And I looked at Elizabeth and I said, I think that poem is by a guy named Robert Burns and I think it's in the poetry book our son gave me years ago. Sure enough, I went to the shelves and found it, and there was the poem in there. And it's a red, red rose. And so because it's Valentine's Day week, I wanted to read this. A red, red rose by Robert Burns. Oh, my loves, like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my loves, like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. As fair art thou, my bonnie lass, so deep in love am I. And I will love thee still, my dear. Till ah the seas gang dry. Till ah the seas gang dry, my dear, and the rocks met with the sun. Oh, I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands o' life shall run. And fare thee weel, my only love, and fare thee weel a while. And I will come again, my love, though it were ten thousand mile. Well, that describes my love for Elizabeth. And my desire to love her, cherish her, and protect her, and lead her in a way that honors Jesus Christ, whose word challenges husbands to love their wives how? As Christ loved the church. You know, the church, the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, it means uh, called out ones. He calls us out of the world and its sin, and he calls us to himself. And the church of called out ones is called the bride of Christ that he loves and gave himself up for. When Jesus came to earth, he knew that saving that bride would mean he would need to engage in multiple battles with Satan, that terrible adversary of mankind. Jesus also knew he would need to go undefeated against sin and Satan to save his bride. And so in today's passage, we actually see the first three rounds of Jesus facing off with Satan after his baptism. So Matthew chapter 4, hopefully you've gotten there by now. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. It tells us, it says, Then Jesus 
was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, As it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Battle for the bride, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Matthew chapter 4, where we read of Jesus engaging the devil in battle. And for every temptation that Satan brought, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those temptations that we have succumbed to time and time again, our champion Jesus answered with scripture and did not succumb. And thank you, Jesus, that you made it through an entire human life without sinning. As the sinless son of God, you were able to be our sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we thank you for that. Thank you that you now are our advocate, that you're seated by the right hand of God the Father. And you intercede constantly for those that you're bringing to yourself, Lord God. Thank you that you are able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through faith in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for how having embraced you by faith and been born again, not through our own actions, but through what you did for us on the cross, we thank you that you put your spirit inside of us to lead us as we engage in overcoming temptation, Lord. And we'll never do it perfectly like you did. But we thank you that you are our champion and our model. And you give us the resources to overcome, Lord God. And so when we don't, it's on us. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord God, I pray that as we look at this passage, Lord, you'll help us in our own battles. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the first two verses here, we see that Jesus readied himself for battle. He readies himself for battle. It says in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, baptism is a real spiritual high for folks. And oftentimes, after a spiritual high comes what? Some kind of spiritual fight, some kind of spiritual low. The spiritual high moment of Jesus' baptism was followed by a spiritual fight, which is often the case for us as well. And we know that spiritual mountaintop experiences, we call those those times we feel especially close to the Lord, will be tested in life's wilderness, life's tough moments. Many times you come out of Sunday so happy to see your friends and be strengthened in the Lord. And uh, you learn something in the Word in Sunday school and in the nighttime things and the pastor's message. And you've uh, spoken words of encouragement to somebody else and they've encouraged you. And then you go back out there and it's Monday. 
and there's battles, sometimes more than three in a day, like Jesus experienced here. But we're told that Jesus was led to this wilderness battle by God the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel tells us he was full of the Spirit, and truly to be led of the Spirit uh, means you need to be full of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is perfect, but when we as sinners confess our sin, God flushes it out of us, and he fills us up with himself, his Spirit. And in that state, when we're totally committed to doing his will and what would please him rather than ourselves, then we're being led by the Spirit. And what this means for Jesus is that facing Satan head on was God's idea. Uh, you know, um, God ain't afraid of the devil, is he? Um, and so God was going on the offense at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not the defense. And I think about Jesus' wonderful words to us in Matthew 16 where Peter gave the glad confession that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. And, Je and Jesus said, oh, that's awesome. Now listen, on professions like that, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to overcome it. And so we think of Satan coming for us and are our gates going to stand? But Jesus flipped it around just like happens here. He's going out to do battle with Satan. And it's Satan's the one that's afraid when we come to where he's got gated communities. When we're going to come and try to bring somebody to Christ or bring the light of the gospel or the light of God's truth to a situation where it's not there, Satan's the one trembling saying, I hope they don't come. I hope they're not prayed up. I hope they're not coming to do battle. It was God's idea for Jesus to face this head on. Well, James 1.13 tells us that God is not the one who sends temptation, though, uh, but allows Satan to tempt and sin to have consequences. Now, when you think about that, that's the cost of free will choices. God could have made us as robots in the Garden of Eden to never sin, to always say, I love you to God and I love you to each other. 6,000 years would have passed and Adam and Eve would still be alive. But there'd be something artificial because as we think about Valentine's Day week, to freely receive love, you need to be able to freely give love. And if it's free choice love like that, then what can happen is people can say, I don't love you back. I won't be your Valentine. And the world lives in rejection against God. And so for sin and temptation to have meaningful consequences, then, uh, then that's the cost of free will choices. But the good news for believers is that God helps his people overcome. Amen? 1 John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Let's do that again. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith faith. So if you have faith in Christ, you're already an overcomer. When Romans 8 says God's people are more than conquerors, we're more than conquerors because we're with the conqueror. Jesus says the conquering and we're with him and so by faith. Well, in this case, the testing was not to win the father's approval. Jesus already had that. At his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, this was to show every creature under heaven that Jesus is the O.C., the overcoming conqueror. And uh, we're so glad for that. Now think about this. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the garden and they failed. And they were booted from paradise. But the second Adam, Jesus, was tempted by Satan and overcame. Not just for himself, but for all of his disciples he will bring to paradise. Adam and Eve's failure got them booted from paradise. Jesus' victory is going to make paradise accessible to those of us who are with him in Christ by faith. And we're told this happened in the wilderness where Israel's greatest failure was. But Jesus, the rightful king of Israel, overcame there. And so just as David overcame Goliath and became Israel's champion that day, in this beautiful text, Jesus whoops Satan and becomes our champion. 
Look at verse 2. And it says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, if you didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, you'd probably be hungry, wouldn't you? I wonder what, uh, what's the deal with fasting? Let's take a moment or two and talk about it. Fasting is when people miss one or more consecutive meals. In the Bible, there were two main times they fasted. When they were mourning, they just didn't feel like eating because they were mourning. Sometimes that lasted for seven days for some of them. And when they had a spiritual burden and needed to focus their prayers. And we see numerous examples of both an individual fasting in the scriptures and a group of people fasting in the scriptures. We call that a corporate fast. The longest corporate fast for mourning that, you, that I found, and, and correct me if you later see a longer one, but I, I saw the longest one was seven days. And it was they just were so upset at the death of a leader that they just didn't eat, you know. And the longest corporate fast for spiritual focus I, I can find in the scripture where they were all doing it at the same time was three days, where they missed three days of meals. I think about Esther uh, talking to Mordecai in Esther 4.16. She said, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, we're in the Persian Empire here, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai told her, God has raised you up potentially for such a time as this. All the Jews in the kingdom are in danger of being killed. You are the wife of the king. You have his ear, and this is your step-up time, sister. And she said, you know, if you go in without being asked to come in, you could die. That's just the way it is in this patriarchy here, you know. And so she, uh, she says, she, she realizes that she has to. It's her people's best chance. But she says, I can't do this alone. I need to be, have people praying for me. So she solicits prayers. And she says, it's such a serious time. You gather every Jew out there and tell them to fast for three straight days. My maidens and I will do that too. And then I'll go in. And after all that time of us corporately uh, focusing our spirits here and uh, in the power of the spirit, when I go in there, if I then die, then, well, that was God's will. So be it, you know. And, of course, it, it happened that way, you know. With spiritual power, she went in and Haman wound up hanging on the gallows he erected for Mordecai. So God answered their prayers above and beyond and rescued the people. We see many great examples of individual fasting also. And, of course, even in our English language, we think of the word breakfast, break fast, right? At breakfast, you're breaking the fast. Uh, sometime... Uh, before bed you stopped eating for them it was usually around dark uh, hours would pass till light and then they would eat they'd be breaking the fast it wasn't necessarily a spiritual fast they were just using that word to at its raw meaning mean you're missing eating and you're hungry when you wake up usually the most common uh, fast we hear of uh, was when something sobered them and they fasted until the rest of the day. So you'd get bad news. Uh, oh no, um, someone's sick. And many times we read in the Old Testament of people fasting until evening. So they uh, heard about it early in the morning and they missed lunch, they missed dinner. They were just in a spirit of prayer and hoping that the person would get better or some other spiritual need. We read of others fasting for several days and even weeks, as in Daniel 9. I love Nehemiah 1.4 uh, because he, Nehemiah heard that uh, Jerusalem was a mess, 
he heard that he, he was himself in uh, Persia, I believe, and he was, uh, you know, the king's cupbearer and such an uh, important person. But he heard, he inquired and found out that Jerusalem was in a real mess. And so here's what he says. As soon as I heard these words about Jerusalem's troubles, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so he heard that news and he was just said, I need to spend extra time. And some of you are so concerned about a prodigal child. Maybe you need to select a time and fast for on Friday or something. Some of you have a spiritual concern about a lost person that you know. And maybe you want to miss a meal or two and focus your prayers uh, for them. Moses and Elijah both fasted 40 days. Moses, we, in Matthew, we're seeing a lot of similarities between how Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the better Moses. And when he fasted 40 days, he came down with the law, the Old Testament Ten Commandments and law, and he gave those to the people. Not long after this fast of Jesus, he's going to preach his Sermon on the Mount, which is the best sermon ever uh, preached and taught and the basic summary of what Christ wants from his followers. Now, Satan was about to come at Jesus like he did at Eve and Adam. So this spiritual time of focus uh, was there for Jesus. When we fa fast, we're taking the time it would have taken to get the food and prepare the food and then eat the food. And generally that uh, can be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half, you know, of our time. And we're not eating. Instead, we're praying. And as we miss that first meal and that second meal, what happens? We get a little rumbly in the tumbly, right? Uh, like Winnie the Pooh, I got a little rumbly in my tumbly. And uh, most of the time, we wind up feeding the flesh. We wind up feeding that flesh. And I don't know about you, but what happens after uh, you have a big meal with rich food? Is your best time of prayer right after that? No, no, I'm looking for a place to nap. I hear somebody snoring through my message right over here. Um, but that's like that. So as we miss that first meal, uh, an hour goes by and we have a rumbly in our tumbly. And at that moment, what do we do? Uh, oh, I'm, do I'm not eating because I'm praying. And we pray again. We pray again. We're in a spirit of prayer. And I don't know about you, but the times I fasted a little bit longer uh, in that second day or that third day or that fourth day or whatever, boy, I'll tell you what, it, it's really aching at you there. We're so connected to the physical world through our eating. And so what fasting does is um, it uh, disconnects us for a little bit from those things physical and makes us think about spiritual things. And so uh, if you've never fasted, you'd want to start with just missing a meal. Uh, and then if you go much longer than that, you would want to talk to a doctor about principles of fasting and things like that. Every once in a while, I, I feel awkward because a, a church leader somewhere will say, our whole church is going to fast for 40 days. And again, the longest corporate one for spiritual focus that I could find in the Bible was three days. My, I'll tell you what, I've been the beneficiary of people's praying and fasting, though, I can tell you. Uh, I had a tremendous uh, ministry at the previous church up in Waynesboro. God did so many neat things. Uh, and in many ways, I was getting to be the leader of the experience of what came because of the pastor before me's prayers. During his time as pastor, the seven years he was pastor, twice he fasted for a spiritual breakthrough, 40 days. 
He went 40 days both times, just like Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But uh, the breakthrough didn't come while he was pastor. It did come while I was pastor. So I was the beneficiary of those time-release bombs that uh, prayer is and fasting is and those things. And so, of course, you put the glory of God right at the top. Now, Satan was about to bring the heat. Uh, we talk about pitchers bringing the heat, their fastball, and their, then they got a curveball and other things. And Satan's got three big pitches. He's got the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he was going to bring those and try to get Jesus. And so Jesus prepared himself spiritually. In Ephesians 6, we say we're to put on the armor of God, and prayer and fasting can help us do that. Jesus readied himself for the battle. Now, let me ask you this. Who is our biggest battle first against? Don't say Satan. It's against ourselves first. You ever thought about, now we know that Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and they sinned. They were completely innocent people. We know there's a coming time, the millennium. And at the end of that time, during the time of the millennium, uh, Satan's going to be bound. And only at the end of that time will he be released to do harm again and gather an army to fight Christ at the very end there. Um, but... There's going to be a time of near perfect thousand year experience with Christ on earth reigning where people at the end will still be duped by Satan because their own hearts weren't seeking the Lord. They didn't fight the battle with, for, with themselves for Christ to reign in their hearts. He's going to reign on earth but not be reigning in their hearts. And they're going to be ready for to be duped by Satan when he comes. And in our day... Yes, Satan is a terrible foe, and he's constantly tempting. He's got a network of demons. But first and foremost, your battle is with yourself. We have to first take our faith in God and preach to our bodies, to preach to our minds, to preach to our hearts, uh, God's truth, and do that inner battle before we do the outer battle with Satan and his demonic foes. He has so got people under his sway. I love how Ephesians 6 says that we don't fight against people. Uh, we fight the principalities, the territories. And to do that, we need to be people that are readied through prayer. I like how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul modeled that in his ministry, but he didn't model it better than Jesus our Lord did. Later, Jesus would say to us, if you want to be my disciples, what do you need to do? Deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, die to self first kind of focus, and follow me. And boy, did he ever model that. Well, now let's look at the first temptation. The first temptation. And the first temptation is the battle to delay gratification, verses 3 and 4. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you're God the Son, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The tempter came for Jesus, and the tempter's coming for us all, isn't he? 1 Peter 5, 8 says to us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, not a little kitty cat, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now think of how hungry Jesus must have been after 40 days of fasting. Now how do you think the devil is going to tempt Jesus first? Hunger, food, right? Satisfy that hunger. In the area of physical hunger, folks, you need to know that Satan is a master of looking at your weaknesses and trying to exploit them. You better know where you're prone to be most weak at. You can guarantee Satan and his demons 
are, are studying your area of weakness. We got two uh, football teams now drawing things up on the board. They're looking for the weaknesses in the offense and the defense of the other side, things they can exploit, jump a pass, get an interception, run it down. Uh, to the end, uh, you know, areas in the defense, this, uh, this uh, free safety can't do as well as another one, so we're really going to exploit that mismatch and those things. Satan and his demons are doing that all the time with you, with you and me. They are in this church and everyone who calls upon the name of Christ. Now, Satan's purpose was to get Jesus to sin, and that would disqualify him to save anyone. He'd be a sinner like the rest of us. But God's purpose was to prove his son to be sinless and thus a worthy savior. So Job 1, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he put the parameters on how Satan could tempt Job. And Job came through. Uh, it was a, it's a wonderful book. But I think about uh, God saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Jesus? And here uh, the devil's trying to get at Jesus. Job, to an extent, failed. Job wasn't guilty of any sin that made the calamity come upon him, but he sinned in some of his reactions to God, and so he had to humble himself before God when God showed up. Jesus never sinned, and he's looking forward to uh, continuing that wonderful relationship with his heavenly Father. So here's Satan's first temptation. Jesus, use your divine power for your own personal advantage. Use that spiritual power you have as the Son of God to meet personal needs. You don't have to have your needs met the way ordinary humans do, Jesus. You're the Son of God. You can use your power to meet your own needs. So, Jesus, you can work miracles. Take the easy road. The temptation to go ahead and gratify yourself rather than delay that gratification for higher purposes and God's perfect timing on things. Well, Jesus knew he needed to face this moment as a human and not use his deity to his own advantage. I don't want to take anything for granted. The word deity means that he's God, that he's divine. Not using his being God to his advantage. He could have, and in places he did. He worked miracles. But he didn't use them for his own advantage. And so we can't work miracles. And if we saw Jesus justify using his deity to personal advantage, maybe we might justify stealing or taking shortcuts to meet our needs. Well, I'm not a miracle worker like Jesus, so I've got to find other ways to get it done. I, and we'll go ahead and jump in and sin where we should have waited on the Lord. Think about this too. People in our community and around the world are living in physical hunger. And it's not uncommon around the world for somebody to die because of malnourishment. And there's times of famine. If you live long enough, you'll see a famine on some part of the earth wind up killing people. Many times it's because of other political sins and mismanagement that that happens, even when the world's trying to get resources to a place. But can Jesus relate to that poor person out there that's hungry, that kid that hasn't had a meal this week, a good meal anyway, to the person on the other side of the world that's not eating themselves so their kids can and those things? Boy, can he ever, at the beginning of his ministry, this 40-day fast, hungering so he could identify and relate to all that he would save. Now, how did Jesus respond to this temptation? What did he use? He used scripture. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And so Satan comes and Jesus 
had, during his childhood, uh, not only, uh, I just wonder if uh, instead of asking for um, other birthday presents, if Jesus said, you know, dad, mom, what I'd really like is one of the scrolls. I know that where we are, they keep the scrolls down at the synagogue. I love going there and reading them at Sabbath school and, you know, the extra times. But, but, but oh, it'd be great if I could have a, a scroll of Deuteronomy or one of those things, you know. And we know from Jesus' ministry that during his childhood, just like we encourage our Awana kids to do and any other uh, child or youth or adult in the church, Jesus hid God's word in his heart. We're told that if we hide God's word in our heart, we won't sin against the Lord. And so Jesus readied himself for spiritual battle, not just through the prayer and fasting, but through 30 years before that, 30-something years before that, where he got into the word of God and the word of God got into him. And he's ready to identify with his mind and his heart and his spirit. He's, He's ready to identify what Satan's asking him to do and use a scripture to repel it. I wonder how many of you can do that. We're all called to be able to do that. If Satan comes with a fleshly temptation and you respond in the flesh, guess what? You're going down. You're going to fall. But Jesus used what's called the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6, 17, the word of God to answer. He says, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8, 3, that he was able to just access, pull up, and when Satan tempted him, he's able to give a good scripture to answer that. And that's what we want for each and every one of you as well. Later, Jesus would use his divine power to meet the needs of others, including the feeding of 5,000 and 4,000. But he faced these temptations as the Son of Man, voluntarily limiting his power as the Son of God. Are you ready to respond to temptation with scripture like Jesus did? When Satan tries to get you to lust after someone, men and women both, have you locked into your mind, Job 31.1, that says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, I will not gaze lustfully on a young maiden. Lock it in, be ready. When you're tempted to tell a lie to improve your situation a little bit, can you lock into Psalm 51 and say, oh no, I want to desire truth in my innermost being. I want to, like Ephesians says, to speak the truth in love. And I'm not going to make my own experience easier or by telling a lie. Well, that's one of the big 10 anyway, isn't it? That's the 10 commandments. Thou shalt not lie. In the Hebrew, it's lie not. (laughs) Actually, I'm dyslexic. I got the order reversed. It's low is first, not lie, not steal, not adultery. Easy for us knuckleheads, right? Fits it right out there like that. Well, don't give in to the many ways that Satan tries to get you to instantly gratify your flesh through eating, through substance abuse, through sexual sin. Learn from Jesus to delay your gratification and wait upon the Lord like he did. You know what happens when you do that? He makes everything beautiful in its time. Three times in the Song of Solomon, a book devoted to Valentine's Day kind of uh, amore. Um, Three times it says, do not awaken or arouse love until it's time. It's the lady who is in love with Solomon saying, ladies, it was worth it to wait. Don't go there before it's time. There's a beautiful time and a beautiful place to eat and to engage in sexual relations with your dear spouse in the covenant of marriage. 
The battle to delay gratification. Jesus passed it with flying colors. The battle, next one was, to serve rather than entertain. Verses 5 through 7, look at them here. It says, Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. He took him to the temple complex in Jerusalem. Now, if this was at the southeast corner of the temple complex, the Jewish historian Josephus later said that it was a 450-foot drop to the Kidron Valley ground below. So if that's where they were when he said, Hey, Jesus, man, you're, you're God the Son. You're the Son of God. Throw yourself down and, and here's some scriptures for you. You know, now... What is different about Satan's approach in this second temptation? You got it. Tell me. Both of you said it at the same time. He used the scriptures. Yeah, he used the scriptures. Um, so he quotes, really he misquotes scripture like he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really say uh, and so he quotes Psalm 91, but he misquotes it a little like he did with Adam and Eve. He slightly leaves the phrase out, not suited to his purposes like he did with Eve. It's, it's like Satan was coming to Jesus like some people will come to you and say, oh, you're a Bible guy. Well, that's okay. I got something for you. Satan is always studying us. He's learning, looking for new ways to trap us. Oh, you like the Bible. You like religion. And around the world, he uses religion to get people to sin. And he uses misquoted scripture to get people to sin. He'll do that. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that, So that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his devices. One of my favorite books I have in my uh, library over there is uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, written in the 1600s by Thomas Brooks. And he goes through the different devices and temptation strategies of Satan and how they get answered in the scripture and how we can be ready for those attacks. The first one he talks about is how Satan is a master of presenting the bait but hiding the hook. And we like fish that see that beautiful bait and get it and then they're hooked. We go after that shiny thing and we get hooked and he's got us. And he's okay with using scripture and misquoting it to make that happen. What is this second temptation? Do something spectacular, Jesus. Put on a sensational display of power. It will be so entertaining and it will wow the crowd. Man, they'll get on their smartphones and they'll give you likes and they'll follow you and you'll be so famous and popular or infamous. And I think about all the people in the world, even a lot of professing Christians trying to get people's attention by saying something clever, doing something outrageously dumb or this or that. And they're just as far as just being disciples of Christ, maybe just a little too cool for school, you know, because uh, they want to stand out and say that this is the, nobody in all of history has been able to tell you what I'm going to tell you as I preach this to you. And beware of people that tell you they can answer for you things in a way that nobody's ever been able to get right before in 2,000 years of serving Christ. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So how does Jesus answer misquoted scripture? He gives one that's more relevant to the case, that he wouldn't throw himself down. You shouldn't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. 
I believe that too many believers, too many pastors are putting the Lord to foolish test by going right to the limits of disobedience and sometimes past the limits and almost daring God to keep them from the consequences of their sin. And folks, I can't help but wonder, but what would have happened if Jesus had thrown himself down? Would he have gone splat below or would the angels have kept it from happening? Well, thankfully, Jesus had the Holy Spirit and he had common sense, right? And he knew that he had not come to entertain but to serve. The point is that Jesus knew it would be foolish to take Psalm 91, which is a beautiful passage about God protecting his people as they follow him, and made that, make that a justification for rash, presumptuous actions. He didn't come to entertain but to serve. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to minister to others for the glory of God. And as we do it, we can do all things he has called us to through Jesus Christ. A New Testament way this is messed up is Philippians 4.13. People take it. It says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And they think, oh, I can do anything that I want to do. Uh, be a singer when, no, you're not. Or be an athlete when, no, you're not. Uh, be good at something you haven't previously been good at. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that means the things he's called you to do. To do your part to make your marriage work. To do your part to love those ornery kids. And to love your insecure parents that are trying to work out something from their own childhood by the unnecessary things sometimes they're putting on you. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In its context, one of the most beautiful promises. Just like Psalm 91 is, the promise of God's protection that as you're seeking him and following him, if something bad happens, then he's going to bring you right to glory. He's got this. Lottie Moon, the missionary, said, I am immortal until my time has come. And so she could face persecution and other things there in China people threatening her with death. Another missionary another time was threatened with death and he said, you can't kill me because I'm already dead. And they said, what? I've got a sword here. I can block off your head. Well, you can do that, but then I'll bleed and uh, you'll hold up my head like you're triumphing, but God will take the, every message I've preached and sprinkle my blood over it of authenticity as a Christ follower and the impact will just magnify. You can't kill me. I'm already dead. And they say, well, that guy's crazy. And they just walked away. Now, uh, later Jesus said he could easily call 10,000 angels to his aid and he could have but instead of wowing the people here he faithfully walked among us and took the road to the cross he wasn't going to take easy he wasn't going to take shortcuts he embraced what he had to do in serving the father the third battle is the battle to glorify God rather than oneself now I should say when Jesus was on earth, we see a voluntarily yielding to God the Father. And as he prays, he sa as he talks to his disciples, he said th says things like, the Father is greater than me. But in other passages, he says, I and the Father are one. And he calls himself the great I am, the one Moses talked to at the burning bush. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit are absolutely equal in the Godhead. But while he was on earth as a human, Jesus in his humanity... Uh, voluntarily limited his deity. He used it to do miracles for the benefit of others, but never really to benefit himself. And he modeled for us 
the human experience of following after God as a human. And so uh, we, we could take these last couple verses a different way where when he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, he's basically like, well, I'm God, you're not, so I'm not going to make that deal with you. But we're going to take it here in the sense that he's pointing us to worship God the Father through faith in God the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So this third temptation is to receive temporary glory by making a deal with the devil. And at the time of this temptation, because of Adam and Eve's sin and sin in the world, Satan uh, did have the authority to make this offer. John 12, 31 says that he's the ruler of the world that Jesus is going to cast out. In their case, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, that's our case, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in this third temptation, Jesus, Satan tried to appeal to Jesus to set aside the hard work of going to the cross by making a deal with the devil. I would just give it to you now, Jesus. Uh, let's come up with some kind of partnership plan. I'll be first, you'll be second, and you'll have it. And you won't have to suffer and die. What kind of father would submit you to that kind of plan anyway? Satan's offer was get glory for yourself the easy way, Jesus. I'll give it to you without suffering, without a cross, without having to put up with disciples that will disappoint you over and over and over and over again. I shudder to think of the consequences had Jesus made a deal with the devil. I think about how many people I've known who have regretted their own deal with the devil, who took the easy road, who didn't want to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, who did not delay their gratification and live to experience built-in consequences of their sin. And thank God for his forgiveness because there's none of us that don't sin. So thank God that because he's our champion, he has something to offer those of us who fail. But for us, sin will take us further than we wanted to go. It'll keep us longer than we wanted to stay. It'll cost us more than we were ever willing to pay. And thank God we have a Savior that in encountering the same temptations said no and instead worshiped the Lord. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6 and 10. Later Jesus said, What does it profit a man? What does it profit a woman if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Well, they gain nothing. A little temporary glory now. Uh, and then eternal separation from God the Father, no peace, no joy, no purpose for all of eternity. Instead, punishment because of defying God. Oh, it's not worth it. The Bible makes clear that now that Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross, the time is coming when the entire world is going to worship him. Amen? At lunch, you might want to read Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But the Father has raised him up. He's raised him up. And now every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess that Christ is Lord. And that's going to be true for all eternity. Even those in hell will acknowledge that Jesus is the one that they should have turned to, that he is God, and they'd rejected him. So sad. 
But before that time where he'll be worshipped, Jesus would embrace the whole human experience, die, be buried, and rise. Well, Satan brought his best attacks at Jesus that day. He brought the lust of the eyes. He brought the lust of the flesh. He brought the pride of the life. But Jesus won, and he kept on winning. Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel had failed. Jesus succeeded where we continue to fail. He's our champion. He's our model. Verse 11 tells us, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The fallen angels left, the faithful angels came and ministered. And that's a beautiful thing to picture, isn't it? Jesus, back in the corner, he's won the fight. And his robe men come to him and they're patting him and they're feeding him, you know. Uh, uh, probably the ministry would include food at that point, you'd reckon, you know. Whatever you can eat after 40 days of fasting might have been soup before it was, uh, you know, meat. Um, but God uses all kinds of things to minister to us as well. We go out there and do battle during the week and he pictures this time when we come together to be a time of encouragement and strengthening for us as we worship the Lord together and get fed uh, in the word in Sunday school and church and service in all kinds of different ways. And we come looking to speak a word of encouragement to others. We are the instrument God uses to minister to one another. You say something to me that helps me grow. I say something to you. Uh, he, he helps us equip one another for the work and the ministry that God has for us out in this world during the week. And I'm so thankful for the different ways he ministers to us like that. Because of the new birth in Jesus, we have precious promises, don't we? Here's one that relates to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. More than one alcoholic has realized in the midst of that temptation that they can't overcome it alone. And they remember, oh, I've got a sponsor I can call, somebody that's been there, has the same struggles I do. And now they're a little further along the line. They've been alcohol or drug-free for a year and a half. I've just been for three days, and I've got these cravings again. And they call, and that person says, well, I'll come over right now. We'll get coffee. And they're there for each other in that moment. Many times the resources God gives are the scriptures and prayers, but you cannot fight the battle alone like Jesus did. He's God. He gives us each other. He sent his disciples out two by two. And he gives us the gift of each other to help us as we face temptation. And when you give in, you have not used all the resources you have. Amen? So use those the next time. Get a little further down the road in victory for Jesus Christ. James 4, 6 through 8 says it this way. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. What will the devil do? He'll flee from you. Guess what? He'll come back. So you resist him again. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You remember perhaps when you were a child having a conflict with another kid and your dad was around, right? What would you do? You'd hit him and then you'd run behind your dad and the other fellow would want to get you back so bad and stuff, but there you were with dad. Well, you're in conflict out here in the school ground of life, right? And your heavenly father is there for you. Run to him. Run to all the resources you have. He tells us to flee too. Flee youthful lusts. 
Flee that which messes you up and embrace God and all that he has for us. Oh, how often we have failed. But this Valentine's Day, we have a champion. We have a fitting founder who loves his bride and gave himself for. And so the last verse I want to bring your attention to is 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The word's paraclete, the same word used for the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us. We have one who comes alongside of us, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that means atoning sacrifice. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.